welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back to another Knock On Podcast. I'm actually sitting here with Don Trump Jr. Thanks. It's about time we did this. It is. I, we, we've been talking about it for a while, but I've been pretty busy for the last, let's call it a uh, year and a half, uh, yeah. running around all over the country. Yeah, you had a few things on your plate. Yeah, one or two. <laughs> we're, we're in New York City. Um, it's a beautiful day today. We're sitting in Don's office, and we've been shooting bows. We had a archery kind of an archery fun couple days here. Oh, yeah. And one thing I want to say is um, Don, lately it's come out how much Don is an outdoors person. But I'm here to say he is as legit as they come. Like, I've always said that there's, there's I know a lot of hunters, but I probably only know one handful maybe two handfuls of people to where if I had to pick someone to do a very very difficult hunt with or if I had to do like more of a survival style hunt that I would do it with and I told Sharon last week I'm like Don would be one of those guys because when we've been places together you're the first one out which that's kind of my rule so Mm -hmm. you, you kick my butt on that you're the first one out and you're the last one back all the time and you've done some ridiculously hardcore hunts even with your boy yeah in alaska and you're you're not you're definitely not a political conservation person you are a conservationist and outdoorsman yeah and you're geeked out about it a <laughs> hundred that's you know it was funny i think i did something in you know a couple unlikely uh venues you know new york times washington post and they were with us you know, when we were hanging out in Iowa, yeah. you know, back on the campaign trail early on in the in the primaries, and they're like, well, you know, how do you tell the difference uh, between the guys that are just doing this so they can get the hunter vote and, you know, versus the guys that actually hunt? I go, well, how many times did I shoot? They're like, nine. How many times did I miss? They're like, none. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. sort of self-explanatory, but I got sick of seeing, you know, some of these guys, they talk about, they're, they're big pro-Second Amendment, but they're standing there posing with their brand new shotgun, their fingers on the trigger, the safety's off, they're pointing it at someone's face, you know, and, and they're they're pretending they live that lifestyle, and they, they don't. Um, for us, it was, a, it was a big part of the way we grew up, it was a big part of our life. Uh, you know, not to say that I was ever an angel, uh, <laughs> but I think the outdoors, you know, hunting, fishing, uh, shooting, the discipline associated therewith, the sort of... Uh, all of those things, I think, kept me out of so much other trouble I would have gotten into growing up. Uh, oh, you know, yeah. Perhaps especially, you know, as a guy who's you know, from a wealthy family in New York where, you know, just... There's opportunity to not to not be wise with your life. A lot, a lot of those yeah. opportunities. Yeah. Uh, you know, and like I said, I was, I, I, no one's going to believe I was ever an angel, but like, you know, when you're waking up at 4 o'clock to be in a tree stand... Uh, yeah. you're, you're driving cross country to spend a month, you know, during the summers to go, you know, fly fishing all over the place. You know, those experiences were just awesome. And it's, it's the way I'm bringing up my kids, you know, for anyone who follows me on social, it's, you know, the weekend pictures. Yeah, we live in New York City, cause I, so I can walk to work, basically. But 
you know, after that, come Friday afternoon, we're up in the country, they're on snowmobiles, they're on ATVs, they're shooting bows, they're shooting guns. They're, you know, Campfires, we, you guys cook on fire. Oh, yeah, we, we camp do. Out. We do all of it, you know. Mm -hmm. we, we eat venison, and it's, uh, it, it, it's awesome. And uh, it, it, I think it's great for them. They can experience both sides of the thing, but I just never want my kids growing up to be just that pure city kid that, you know, wouldn't know how to change a flat tire, would be totally clueless. I mean, my kids get dirty, and they get dirty often, and uh, I think it's it's great for them. Well, you know, you can tell a lot about hunters by small details, mm -hmm. and when you walk to work, a lot of the times, if you see Don walking to work, he's in mountaineering boots. <laughs> like, the first you gotta time break I, him in somewhere. Yeah. You, well, yeah, the first time I saw you, I looked down and I'm like, okay, he's got a legit pair of mountaineering boots. And they're actually flexing. So I knew, like, you you lace those things up all the time. And those are small little details yeah. that people that have that are part of that lifestyle, they understand. You yeah. know, it's not like you're pulling something out and there's still stickers on it. Yeah. I mean, if you're pulling something out, it's been used. And, 100%. And you're into, um, you're actually more of an archer than me, I would say. Because you do more. <laughs> I don't know. I think you got your credentials uh, probably. No, no. Because I'm very one-sided with. Well, I guess I'm two-sided. I'm target-sided, and I'm and I'm hunting-sided. Mm -hmm. But you're just as into traditional equipment. Like you're That's really true. into tr traditional. You're yeah. into recurve, and you're in the compound. I mean, you sent me a picture last summer. I think you won. Um, at the Campfire Club, which is a very well-known, awesome uh, club here in New York, um, you won the trad and the compound division. Uh, that's true. And I, you know, I got into trad uh, because you know where I am. Uh, unlike where you are, you know, we don't have uh, you know incredible you know 180 class whitetails and stuff like that. So I got to the point where it's like you know if I'm going to see a 130 class whitetail, you know that'd be a you know, that'd be an awesome year. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so for me, that's how I, you know, that to me is as much of a trophy as if I go to South Texas and shoot something a lot bigger or, or hunt for something a lot bigger. Um, but I wanted to also make it a make it a challenge. And so I, I was sort of a self-taught trad guy, you know, spent years. I mean, I think it was like seven years just sort of flinging away trying to figure out before I really started to try to study it and learn it. Yeah. Uh, and it just made it, you know, such a different game, you know, fletching your own arrows. It was sort of like t when I tie my own flies. When you when you do get that yeah. deer, or when you do catch that trout on, on your own fly, it's just it's a whole new level, um, you know, of excitement. It makes it that much more fun getting out there. So I, I got into the trad, and it, you know, it, it became this like ever elusive dream to be able to shoot well. And yeah. you know, when I really started you know, buckling down instead of just flinging arrows, and really started trying to study it it's amazing what you can actually do with a trad bow and so I got to the point you know I'm, I'm not world class by any means but I can hold my own and I can you know sort of hold a softball at 30 yards and uh, yeah. you know feel pretty good I, I wouldn't hunt much past that <laughs> but uh, it, it it makes you know my local you know whitetail hunting just it makes it a real challenge again yeah uh, and it also makes it where hey if, you know you get an opportunity to shoot a doe for the meat and stuff yeah you know, it's, a, it's a real challenge it's a real hunt it's uh, it's awesome I've actually I've, I've used a trad bow two times on hunts. One time, um, we made a, we made a limited number of um, traditional bows when I worked at Matthews. Mm -hmm. So I took one of the first one out, and 
shot a little bit and thought, you know, I think I can be pretty good with this if I shoot like 10 yards or less. So I went out and I mean, I took a doe with it at 10 yards and I felt like, I felt like completely different. I was like, this was really, really cool. And then the last time I did it was um, when my grandfather died, like right before he died. He actually took a tree that they had cut down on the family place before they built the home there. And he still had that tree and he built me a stick bow out of this. That's and awesome. he came out and I in one of my episodes I had it because I didn't I was afraid to shoot it. He gave it to me before he died and he said, Do you think you could ever shoot anything with this? And I didn't want to hurt his feelings and I said, Well, I'm yeah, I'm sure you could. And actually my good buddy Justin Hackett was at my annual turkey hunt and he's a he's an awesome traditional shooter and i showed him the bow and he's like why won't you shoot something with this and he actually um used the flip down iron sight off his korean war rifle he he actually wrapped that on this straight stick bow Hmm. as the rest and you, you put your arrow off of that so i went and did a turkey hunt um with that I'm going to show you a picture here because him and I are sitting in his office. So I'm going to show him this contraption that my grandpa made. And, uh, man, well, see, my grandpa, and I know your grandpa was a big part of your life too, but my grandpa took me on my very first hunt. It was a turkey hunt. I remember sitting between his legs. He actually sat on a fire ant ant bed. (laughs) And I'm, like, trying to pat him off, and I'm like, fire ants. And he goes... Oh, they only bite you if you let them. <laughs> I'm not sure that's accurate, but... Uh, <laughs> but uh, he called a turkey in. There was a turkey goblin. He called that thing in, and he came came in, and he shot it, and I was I was hooked. But this is the rest oh, that wow. he made. That's awesome. I'll post this on Instagram so everyone can see it. But that's literally iron sights off a Korean War rifle. That's really cool. Um, and... It's wrapped in cat gut, so <laughs> typical southern guy. And then I shot, uh, I shot a turkey with it, and kind of as you know, in memory of him because my first ever hunt was a was a turkey yeah. hunt, and I literally pulled back, shot that. It was like the same thing, ten yards, and it was so rewarding to it's, be able to do that. It's a whole different level. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, whatever it is, you know, for me. Uh, and I've been lucky to be able to hunt all over and do some pretty cool stuff. And, you know, it, 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 like I said, hunting does, you know, w- with trad gear, you know, I get more of a rush than if I shot a big whitetail with a compound. Like, it's just a, yeah. you know, like a big whitetail. It's it's just a a whole different feeling for whatever reason it is. It's it's great. And it's just fun to practice. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, it's fun stump shooting with them. It's just great. But you it's also to... amazing what you can do if you can put your mind to it. Like, you know, they're... They are surprisingly accurate. It's just... And it takes you down to your primal instincts. I mean, it, like, gets you down to primal instincts. My buddy Justin Hackett that I mentioned, he'll stand and shoot at... When we're there for our hunt, he'll shoot at 50 yards with his, and I'm just sitting there thinking... He's wanting to group, and he does group. I would be thinking, can I hit the block target? Like, I'd be pumped with that. But he's beyond... Like, he's to the point where... When he misses, he knows why. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, he's, like, totally... I would say that's true Zen archery because you've eliminated... You know, it's no different than rifle hunters that were amazing hunters, yeah. but they just got to the point where all of a sudden they wanted to just grab a traditional black powder yep. rifle. 
and then you take that step back and uh, our buddy Steve actually loves shooting with like his old you know like a Hawkins like, type flintlock yeah, and, yeah you know just flintlock you know shoot wait boom you know yeah. um, and I think I think all of us out there there's so many people getting into archery now and there's a lot of listeners that are very they're almost to the point where they're at an expert level when it comes to how well they're shooting and things like that. So that's why I love bow fishing. Yeah. And you and I need to do that stingray. I know. We, we, I couldn't do it last year because we were a little bit in the middle of something. But yeah. uh, I, I got to do that one because that, that sounded awesome. And I've sort of been reading up about it. I even bought all the gear and there's like a couple places around me to chase some carp. But like... I, no, you know, that that trip that you were at was was when you sent me the video of shooting one behind the back. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> that was either really good or there's a lot of fish. <laughs> no, no, that was um, my buddy Andrew Goo. He is, um, and I think he did a little bit of um, service work for your dad in DC. Um, but he's he is the stingray master. Yeah. He's got stingrays. He knows all the little sweet spots. And Sharon and I literally shot stingrays till our fingers hurt. Yeah. And and you know even though a lot of people are shooting compound bows and stuff now with with bow fishing, I I love a recurve. Yeah. Because you just pull back and instinct and shoot. And yeah. it's amazing. You're way you you're way more productive, especially like with the flying fish. Mm-hmm. Just pulling back and like letting subconscious just take control. And, I, I and, agree. And it's amazing. Like I said, it, it's sort of surprising what you can do if you set your mind to it with the tragedy. I mean, there there are hunting situations where I think I'm actually at a disadvantage with mm-hmm. compound tackle. Yeah. You know, like if I'm in tight areas, you know, tight saddle where I'm able to get in somewhere, and, you know, sometimes the ability to sort of snap shoot. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. And, you know, I, I don't say that in a, in a, but, you know, inside of 10, 15 yards, uh, it, it's amazing what you can do. Whereas in that same scenario, if you had to draw back to a compound, sort of set up try to figure it's a uh, it'd be a lot harder to make the shot effectively yeah if stuff's moving there's times with um like i can tell you right now during the rut i've been in the stand many a times where if i had a longbow yeah i could have made a shot but when i'm trying to go through my whole process while there's a buck on a doe and they're chart you know they're running all around he stops and he literally stops for a couple breaths and you're trying to like pull back at the right time with that by the time they look at you you're letting go yeah it would be and they're so nice to travel with it's true like I mean, if you talk nice take about, down three, you know it's like oh yeah sticking in a backpack and go it's like, i love that i can almost i could probably do like that my bow fishing trips with a carry-on if they yeah. would if they would let it on yeah i mean i, I, I don't know about the arrows but um well i didn't know we'd get on the subject of traditional equipment for so long but um let's talk a little bit about um you started the silverback you wanted to get into target archery by the way um i built a bow for don it's it's a hoyt hoyt sent the bow and i pretty much came up with a combination came up with an arrow build and you know so this is your first State long stabilizer, side rod, uh, Sherlock sight, Swarovski lens. You got you know really good arrows, and I introduced you to a tension activated release with, with yeah. the Silverback. And what's your first thoughts? 
you know what? I'm surprised how much I liked it. <laughs> it I, you know, having all this shot sort of a trigger, uh, but also being a competitive rifle shooter. Right. I think that tendency of trying to sometimes punch it when it looks right was actually probably holding me back quite a bit. And I, I was sort of amazed that even when I sort of felt like I was calling the shot, like I was swinging out of the bull, yeah. uh, that it, it just got everything to center right back up. And, you know, the results were, I was like, what I thought was starting to become a bad shot still end up sort of dead center. I mean, we were just, you know, we're shooting in close, but man, I, I don't think I could have kept my arrows much tighter at 20, you know, 15, 20 yards. Yeah. Um, it, it was really impressive. I was I was surprised. I was also surprised how kind of quickly I was able to adjust to it after you know decades of uh, shooting differently. Well, in all fairness for the listeners, Don has very very good posture. He's got great alignment, and he was like probably eighty percent there when it comes to when I look at people. Their structure has such a big determination of how easy or how difficult that style of shooting can be for someone. And that's the one downside about when people buy a tension release and if you've bought one and if some days you struggle with it and you feel like it's harder some days than other days, which actually today is our second day. We shot a long time yesterday. So today those new muscles that Don was introduced, it's not that he was tired, but he wasn't able to get it to go off as good as many times in a row. And that's just part of learning something that's utilizing a very finite group of muscles and the bummer part about when people buy one and they get it they can watch some of the videos I do but being able to be there with someone or have a coach where they can identify like for you I'm not sitting there singing you praises every single good shot what I'm trying to do is wait for the one moment where you have the breakdown Mm -hmm. to where your shot was more difficult and then we talk about, okay, here's here's why that shot was a little bit more difficult because I feel like as a competitor or for any type of good sportsman or sports person, being able to identify your mistakes and correct them the fastest is what separates people that are top performers and people that are average performers or people that, you know, some people that don't have either subpar. Mm-hmm. But what separates the good from the great is the great can still make those mistakes, but they notice them a lot. The really good ones notice them before they make the shot. 100%. Which you actually, yesterday, twice, you knew, like, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm doing that thing with my shoulder. Yeah. And you, you know, let the bow down. So. Well, but that was also helpful. I mean, the, you know, again, I, when I'm doing it right, it didn't need anything. It was when those little things, and I mean, it is subtle. Yeah. I mean, that, that shoulder creeps up, you know, a quarter of an inch. Mm-hmm. And, in, I mean, you feel like you have to pull three more inches towards the back to where it's it's just pulling you way off. And uh, you know, it's noticing those little things and, and saying it that way. That's like, now I'm remembering that. That's my swing thought now to keep that down. Yep. As opposed to, yeah, that's right. So that, that was that was really helpful. And, it, and then even the, like, your, the, we, we worked on a couple different things. Don was like most shooters that are definitely above average. You wouldn't look at them thinking well his form's messed up you would say he's got good form but there's small things like when you put a little bit more tension on your front bow grip because he shoots traditional he's used to holding on to his handle so he had a little bit firmer grip on the riser so what happens is when you start to contract your hand 
the bow isn't pushing on your natural bone structure that goes through your body. So when he starts to pull on that tension release, you actually have to compress some of your muscle mass in your hand before you're like building enough solid pressure on that back wall, so to speak, and get the shot to go off. So, you know, we talked about the front shoulder. Then after I knew he knew what we were talking about with that and he was identifying it, then we focused on you relaxing your front hand when you're shooting the compound mm -hmm. and all of a sudden that helps speed things up one or two seconds. And also locking in my rear hand. Yep. Yep. Uh, you know, in, in keeping that very solid and not sort of letting that, you know, letting there be really any play uh, in the release. Right. So for those of you listening, with the handheld release, and um, I've got a couple videos on YouTube you can watch. I'm sure if you type in John Dudley Release Aid, you'll you'll find them on the Knock on Archery YouTube channel. But when you hold a handheld release, you more or less bend your fingers around the release and you allow the release to sit down the middle row of your fingers, the middle row of your knuckles. You don't go past um, your second knuckle, like making a fist to where you're almost holding it more like a brass knuckle. You don't want that. And you don't want it in the first row of knuckles because then you start to extend your hand and you really are varying your draw length. And you also vary how your hand feels on your face. So when it's perfectly flat and curled around, you can have a much more consistent anchor point. And then when you keep that really solid and rigid, when you pull through, you're instantly building pressure. And one small mistake you had made was even though you were pulling properly with the rear elbow, you were slightly kind of relaxing one of your fingers yep. to where you were taking, you were adding pressure, but giving pressure back yep. without knowing it. Mm -hmm. And it was taking your shot just a little bit longer to go off. Um, but, you know, it was a good learning experience because you were taking much longer than what I knew mentally kind of wanted for your shot to take. Yeah. But you were proving to yourself that if you sat in that saddle, the shots were still surprising you with where the arrows were going. Yeah, no, it was uh, without question. And that's what was unique about it. I, I didn't think that sort of your body would take over, uh, you know, and do that. In the same situation with a rifle or a trigger, I think I would have, I would have been off. But that by forcing yourself to sort of not know, I think your body just brought everything back into alignment a lot more naturally. We're getting you know bullseyes and things that didn't feel as good as. Yeah. Yep. Well. We're gonna. I'm gonna need to do some more videos for people listening, specifically on the release aid. I'll do some and talk about these specific points as a good follow up um, with this podcast. But then I guess the other thing that we talked about too with you was your rear rear elbow position. Mm -hmm. And well, there was two elements we talked about. One, um, I talked about you know preloading and finding finding that load. Meaning when he comes to full draw and he brings his elbow up as he's coming to his anchor point, you really want to focus on utilizing that small rhomboid in the more in the center of your back and having, it's almost like if you make a bicep muscle, you can make tension on your bicep without fully flexing it. You can, you know, you can contract a muscle without flexing it. And that's essentially what I want people to do is when they come to full draw and bring that elbow up, I want you to focus just a little bit of attention 
on that muscle group so that once you let off your safety or once you bring your finger to your safety, your mind is already connected to the muscle group that allows you to pull that elbow to the back wall until it executes. Yeah, that made a lot of sense and it, it, was, uh, it was definitely very helpful because that little, that little drop there makes a big difference and also sort of pulling towards you know, the direction you know, directly to your rear, not just behind you, but a little bit back, that sort of 1230 number instead of 11. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. It You're made, talking... made a di- big difference in terms of plucking as well. Okay. Well, so what Don's talking about here is if you're straight behind someone at full draw and you're right behind them and the target's over the top of their head, when they're at full draw, their elbow is probably going to be, you know, if, if the target's at 12 o'clock, their elbow is going to be sitting at about 5 o'clock. If you're the archer, you want to try to pull your elbow around to 6 o'clock, whereas some people continue to pull out towards 5 o'clock. And what happens is when your release breaks, your release comes away from your face and away from the shoulder. And you start to, you know, when you did that, you were that's mm-hmm. the few times you did is when you would have arrows to the right or to the left. Mm-hmm. and But when you pulled through straight through, even if the front pin had a little movement, yeah. the arrow tracked through the bow perfectly and the arrow still found the center. Exactly. And you were able to make the shot easier when you focused on the angle of where that elbow should pull towards. Correct. A lot of people that get a handheld release for the first time Mentally, you're focusing like on your finger on the trigger or you're focusing on holding the release. And, you know, your brain is like thinking about this little six or eight inch circle around your anchor hand and your release hand. Whereas I like to draw that attention away from that. It's and the way I'd explained it to Don was if you use a crowbar, if you grab the crowbar close to the object you're trying to pry, it's much harder to do it than if, you gra- if you're at the end of the crowbar and push, that's what it's for, it's leverage. So by drawing your attention to the very end of the elbow instead of the actual release hand, you'll find that you have much more leverage to be able to go through your shot with less movement. And I think a lot of people that start with a handheld release, they say, um, the more I pull, I feel like it starts to make the front hand shake around more. And I think what those people are doing is they're focusing so much on the release hand that they're adding tension in the front hand too. Whereas if you take that attention away from the hand and to the tip of the elbow and the wall behind you, the stuff in front of your bow, you know, starts to correct itself in some kind of a freakishly, you know, subconscious way. I think, uh, without question, I was actually surprised at how much less I was actually focused on where I was aiming. Yep. And was ending up with better shots when I wasn't. Yeah. It's sort of counterintuitive, but it was it was definitely definitely working out that way. It, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna need to sell some hotel rooms to pay for your arrows if you keep <laughs> shooting at one spot. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> yeah. these arrows aren't cheap, and you're like, no, you're that, not that, yeah, that's not a cheap setup. So we gotta we gotta start picking different dots because yeah. yeah. you're not going to to Cabela's to buy a dozen of these things. But, so. but you know what? It feels good shooting. You know, all arrows touching. So if it, if it, you sacrifice a couple knots and a couple arrows to know that you know you're shooting, I mean, half inch groups of twenty yards. Well, you know, what's kind of nice. What's funny is, so. I mean, Don Trump Jr. 
shot or shoots, you hunted with knock-on quick fletches. I did. And I actually made you some like really good match-grade full metal jackets. And I remember you call me and you're like, these shoot good, but you're like, I just love how convenient those... And they don't make them anymore. We're, oh. we're out. I've, I've literally got eight in a bag for you because I figured Sharon's like, there's like eight strays. What should I do with them? I'm like, I bet you Don's going to call and say, can I have some more? Well, you know, when, when, you know, eventually you shoot through a bag target or something like yeah. that and you rip them off and it's like, you know, it's like, it's a perfectly good arrow. Like, yeah. I just, you know, to be able to just boil up some water dip them, and... You know, they again, shot it, good. if it's a hunting bow, I'm going to be a little bit more disciplined about how far I'm shooting and everything like that. And it's like, man, they, they, they shot really well. I was sort of shocked because I, I still have the other ones. But it, part of it was, though, I was also lazy to, you know, just the couple inch difference in sort of the way and where they shot. Yeah. Uh, especially at distance. Mm-hmm. was sort of like, okay, I'm going to shoot through these and then I'm going to switch to the good ones rather than, you know, sort of yeah. mess with my sights and have two different sets and... Uh, reality, you know, when I it, get something shooting, I'm sort of like, okay, now I'm leaving it alone. <laughs> yeah. Well, if it shoots good, you want to. Yeah. But for hunting, it's not like, you know, you specifically wanted to start extending your range. Correct. Just because I always say, am I an advocate of long-range shooting? Absolutely. Am I an advocate of promoting long-range hunting? Yeah. No. I mean, do I make long-range hunting shots? Yes. Are you know, are they probably controversial at times yeah probably but I practice at a longer distance more than anything just because it magnifies my mistakes well without question I mean and it's also different I think today we live in sort of a little bit of a me too culture where you know some guy who's a you know bow hunter uh you know will see someone do that and say okay well I can do it too and you know there's a difference that guy shooting a six inch group at 20 yards you know, that that doesn't yeah. work at longer distances. I mean, you know, I, I've seen you, you know, be able, so you know, whack a tennis ball at a hundred yards every time. Yeah. You know, it's it's just different. I think people have to, you know, also know their own limitations and not just assume, you know, you can't just buy a package and say, hey, now I have this turnkey thing and I can mm-hmm. do whatever John did. You know, it doesn't work that way. It takes it takes dedication, practice, uh, you know, and, and all of those things to do it. But there is something to be said, you know, if I'm practicing at 70, 80 yards and drilling them, well, guess what? That 30, 40 yard shot yep. now feels like a chip shot on game. Yep. And, and that's the difference. If you're, if you're practicing at 40 and you have to make that shot on game at 40, all of a sudden that's a really hard 40 yard shot. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, so you know, for me, being able to step back and do that and when you're sailing them in at 60, 70 yards, it's like, oh, it, yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to be hunting at those ranges. Uh, but you know, when that shot presents itself, that in, in close to that, it just makes everything so much easier. Everything else slows down. It just oh, feels yeah. like, okay, now we're ready. So uh, it, it was a huge help. Well, I know, I remember watching on, I think it was like a real tree tech tip or something. I was maybe 16, 17, but I remember Chuck Adams saying, he's like, I like to shoot longer distances. And he said, and what I do is, Whatever distance I can shoot accurately for a long distance, he said, I cut that distance in half, and that's my limitation as a hunter. And I think it's a pretty good formula for the majority of the people mm-hmm. out there. You know, if you're, if you're a whitetail person and you know that the majority of your shots are 20 to 25 yards, I would, I would recommend you start practicing more at 50 yards, you know, and, and learn... 
to shoot as good as what you would want to at 20 or 25 at 50 and then that way your margin of error is going to be it's going to be ethical when it comes to a hunting situation where you're you know you're adrenalized you're jacked up and you're probably contorted in a tree stand where your form isn't perfect well and that's the the other big thing is you know practice how you're actually going to be hunting Mm -hmm. you know like how many people really throw on their harness you know to practice how but you're probably one of the few. Yeah. How many people really throw on that extra layer of stuff because it's going to be 20 degrees out there and you're going to be sitting for eight hours? Yep. Uh, how many people really practice shooting at angles? Uh, yeah. You know, shooting between level and shooting from a tree stand. I mean, I learned this the hard way with trad gear because, you know, that, that little, yeah. you know, you, when you get a lockout, you know, from, from a cam, it's a little bit different. I mean, that's your rear sight. You, you're half inch short on your draw and trad gear, and you're six inches low at twenty, right? Yeah, a, right. Because your poundage isn't—you don't have as much poundage on your limbs. Because well, and not only that, but you're changing the tune of your arrow, which mm-hmm. is going to change your flight with broadheads. You know, with field points, you can get away with it. But there's so, so many little things. I was like, man, what's going on? And then finally, I was like, okay, I got to start practicing from these angles. Yep. Uh, but I mean, the same is going to hold true. I think you know, compound gear in that case may be a little bit more forgiving. Uh, but to do all those things because, you know, most of the time, hey, you're in a t-shirt, you're practicing all summer, you're drilling yeah. things. Well, you know, throw four layers on, sit down, freeze your butt off for, you know, three hours and then make the same shot. It's not so easy all of a sudden. Right. I, I always um, shoot a slightly shorter hunting bow than, like, for example, um, on my target bow downstairs, I'm a 31. Like, for all my competition stuff, I shoot 31s, but my hunting bows are all 30 and a halfs. And that's because when I bundle up, I find that, like, especially with my arms, my, my, um, my pulling arm can't, it's like the clothing doesn't prevent it from coming back as far, so I feel like I'm stop, I'm almost stopping sooner because of the bulk in my clothes. Interesting. So I shoot just a little bit shorter, and I mainly do that once it's whitetail season. Now, if it's, you know, if it's spot and stalk mule deer season, or if it's elk season and you're in lighter stuff. I'm fine with a little bit longer draw, but once I start to bundle up, I think it makes a big difference. And um, I think for a lot of the people who are in the really cold area, like, you know, you go, if you talk to guys that are bow hunters in Canada, I mean, oh yeah, That's those cool. people deserve respect because, I mean, it gets cold in Iowa and I've hunted, you know, I, I this year I made it a point to hunt the actually the last three years on the last day of season i hunt for a full the full day daylight till dark and this year it wasn't bad it was like 20 but two years ago well i was, was there it was minus five remember two i, I was there because i was there for the governor's hunt. oh that's right so i, I was that. there it, we had where we were uh i was there for the governor's hunt we were out it was muzzle we were shooting muzzle loader you were just south of me and i was just south of you and it was zero with like 35 mile an hour winds <laughs> the, the wind chill factor was something like we did the math and like i sat out on a hillside mm-hmm. just exposed you know I, I thought they were just messing with the new yorker at first be like you know but the guys hunting with the you know real hunters they you know they had to set up and so we, we just said hey we're gonna put ourselves in a place this wasn't hunting in a in a blind with heaters and stuff mm-hmm. like that. we were out on a hillside for six hours and i think we did the math of something it was like negative 39 <laughs> with the wind chill it was it was brutal, but I, I got some street credit. They still talk about that one because they're like everyone else just went in. They had their cocktails. I sat out till uh, the last possible minute, and, but it was brutal. I've had times where I've sat and stuff like that. And what's funny is there's people right now in Edmonton that are like, 
that's pretty warm. Yeah. I don't I don't even put my thermals on for that. Well, it was the polar vortex, so <laughs> yeah. it was crazy. You know, they had that polar vortex scenario, and it was it was nuts. My my um, when I'm sitting in a stand like that and it's that cold, I get to the point where I'm like, I dang near talk to myself. I just get to the point where I'm like, you're freaking stupid right now. <laughs> yeah. And then it's just like, you know, my teeth are chattering so hard. I, you know, I try to like make a song out of my teeth chattering back yeah. and forth and. You know, but that's uh, and hey, once again, that proves that you are the real deal. Because well, that was one of those times. That, you know, I don't think we saw a deer. The deer weren't stupid enough to be moving around in that cold either. Yeah. They just hunkered down somewhere. But it was a, it was great. Yeah, um, we should talk a little bit because for those of you listening, Don and I both are members of the Boone and Crockett Club. Um, very, very important uh, part of conservation to. You know, to the outdoors, very awesome club that's done so much. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt started it, and the history behind the Boone and Crockett Club, for those of you listening, and especially for those of you who maybe are archers, but you really, you know, maybe you're on the fence about, well, I can understand the purpose of hunting, but, you know, I don't know if I really agree with hunters. I would encourage you to go to the Boone and Crockett website and actually read up on what the Boone and Crockett Club has done. And what's almost, in a way it's great, it's commendable, but in another way it's disappointing that when I became a member, I actually realized that one of the original um, statements or one of the original goals for Teddy was that the Boone and Crockett Club was going to be a silent part of conservation in other words he didn't want it wasn't about them taking credit for all the different things that they did for conservation Mm -hmm. it was supposed to be a silent organization that would do this but there's been so many key parts of everything that we enjoy that came from the the basis and foundation of these the club and the original members and it's never really been brought out. But if you read about it, you'll see some of the thing. I mean, simple things like the introduction of a duck stamp, and what and what that. I mean, there's so many. Well, and beyond that, I mean, way way beyond even hunters. I mean, think about the national park system. Right. Yeah. Uh, the whole, you know, the all whole of, all of these you know public lands uh, that are so important. Uh, you know, to me and to hunters and to yeah. outdoorsmen and to fishermen and to mountain bikers and to kayakers and everyone who you know, really enjoys the great outdoors. I mean, all of that exists because of hunters. Right. You know, it started off that way because those guys wanted to make sure that, you know, the fauna and flora were preserved uh, for others to enjoy in the future. But that kept those lands open. That created the national park system. That yep. I mean, you know, those same guys founded the Boy Scouts of America and sort of some of these great American traditions. And so, you know, it, it wasn't that it, it just benefited hunters and it was selfishly motivated, you know, so they could, you know, pursue their hobby. It was... For everyone, uh, whether they hunted or not, uh, yeah. to be able to enjoy those same that same wildlife, and arguably, there's probably more people that are not hunters that enjoy that than there are actual hunters. I mean, that's, I, I'd say that's you, know. You, you know, you go to you go to Yellowstone Park. There are a lot of people there. I can guarantee. Like I walk around thinking, I think I'm the only hunter around here. I'd say so. But that's another example of. That wouldn't have been there. like Not even close, yeah. Yeah, that would not have been there if it weren't for hunters creating and fighting for that habitat. Pretty much the same 
the same way that we're having to fight to maintain some of our, you know, some of our public hunting now. Very true, and, and and not just within the U.S. I mean, I think it's it's really a global thing. I mean, even you know, publications like the New York Times, which aren't exactly uh, you know conservative or you know hunting, pro hunting type publications, but they're talking about some of the stuff going on in Africa with the hunting bans and what those dollars coming in from hunters meant to the economy. Yeah, and what it meant beyond those dollars coming into the economy if some of the wildlife there, when it had a value, yep. you know, people that are part of it and they there's an incentive for them to preserve that game, yep. to not poach it, uh, you know, beyond the funding of the anti-poaching leagues that comes from the hunting licenses and stuff like that. But, you know, even people, you know, locally living in those wildernesses have a, a have a built-in incentive mm-hmm. to preserve those animals. Uh, you know, the wa- you see it with lions, you see it with yeah. some of the, the predators, you know, they start killing cattle, no one's able to come in and hunt, and guess what? All of a sudden, that thing's not a, yeah. you know, majestic animal anymore. It, it can be it, a, a nuisance it's and so you know being able to do that hunter spending those that money to do that and always having been sort of on the leading edge of conservation that way um you know it's not just within the u.s as it relates to the land but you know like i said if the new york times can write an article saying that wait a minute uh, hunters are actually a pretty valuable aspect of the preservation of those species yeah um you know i, I think it's important for people to note and really to to do their homework because it's very easy to vilify someone um because you don't like what they're doing but if you really look at it you know, hunters are the first, you know, group of conservationists out there. They are the guys spending also, you know, a lot of the real money mm-hmm. uh, to go do these things where there is sort of that waterfall effect where money can go back into the anti-poaching, where it can go back into the game lands, where it can go and say, okay, hey, there's no reason to overgraze these areas because if you do, you're going to push out the game and that means people won't come in and, you know, people's livelihoods in, in those markets depend on that. Uh, when that disappears, it changes the entire ecosystem. Oh, yeah. No question about it. It is a... Uh it's like a key it's it's a cornerstone to the entire outdoor community like us buying licenses us paying for things that help hire dnr officers you know all these it's no different than you know if you go to a park and you have to you know pay a park fee to get in i mean if you take away hunting you would be taking away millions of people that it would almost be like if all of a sudden you told if no one went to one park and no one paid that that fee to go in and camp or whatever, that park would close. I mean, 100%. there's not going to be people working in there. It's going to end up being you know a bunch of high school kids out there having weekend parties, and you're going to drive through there. There'll be litter all over the place, and it's just going to turn into chaos. Yeah, well, and you know when you look at it, I mean, you know, hunters and fishermen. I mean, it's you know, 50 million people. Uh, nationally, you know, when you think about sportsmen, you add in the shooting community to that, and start. I mean, it made a big difference. It's a big part of what I focused on, frankly, on the campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and that wasn't you know selfish to try to get them because I can speak that language and I can talk to them. It, it was about you know it, it, making sure that politicians, not just for this election but for future elections, realize that hey, they will get up, they will go vote, they yeah. will show up, but you also have to cater to them. Yeah, uh, you know, so many people I met initially when we, when I started the process, you know, for the campaign was, well, you know, I, I agree with you, but like I don't want to mix like politics and, and my passion, my hobby. Funny, I go, well, just just remember, guys, like you don't. The other side, their hobby is just getting rid of yours. Yep. Uh, yeah, and so when that sort of message resonated, and when you look at the places that we won, that we weren't supposed to win, yeah, right? whether it be you know Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, yep. when you look at places that we won. 
big mm-hmm. that we're supposed to be close. You know, Iowa, uh, Ohio, uh, you know. That's so, a ton of hunting you know, hunt licenses. There's, there's right a lot there. of hunting licenses, and people are saying, "What do you mean? You're you're a Republican? You're you're campaigning in Michigan? Like you're yeah. campaigning in Wisconsin? Like why are you wasting your time? You're all over Pennsylvania and Ohio." I was like, "No, no, no! Like we we can do this." And I think a lot of those guys showed up, and I, I, those guys showed up and they voted. And that was the Second Amendment crowd. That was the hunting crowd, which there is some overlap, but they're actually very distinct yeah. uh, groups. Yeah. Those the fishing crowds, um, but you go up there and speak to them and sort of point that out and. Yeah, so like I said, I mean, I think it helped us a lot in this election, but I think uh, more importantly uh, for me and for, you know, my wanting to make sure that those traditions are there for my kids yeah. and their kids after them was saying, hey guys, like, people got to look at that and and both sides, uh, you know, the other side, you know, will do anything to condemn the shooters and condemn the, the I don't know, maybe you got to look at them a little bit. Maybe you got to start, you know, thinking about what real America uh, is about because I think you know so many people forgot some of those things and so uh, if if there's one thing we can get out of that you know for for my personal benefit it was hey maybe maybe both sides have to start thinking about catering to hunters uh, you know and fishermen and shooters yeah. a little bit more instead of just sort of you know vilifying and demonizing them and um, you know I, I think that would be great for the future of our sport. Well, one thing you touched on that I think would be cool for you and I to talk about is because a lot of people within the states haven't necessarily traveled the world and some people travel to Africa and they go hunting or they you know maybe they go hunting in um, Australia or something but I traveled a lot of the world my wife's from England you know her whole side of the family is you know European well they're English but I've got a tremendous amount of friends in Europe I've got a lot I've got some friends that are that are very pro hunting but there's some countries that it is not allowed and also the the countries where it is allowed it's so delicate to and it's so important for the people that do have the bow hunting rights or even hunting rights to be integratable about what they especially what they're like nowadays what you post what pictures that you put out there. Um, there's there's certain things that if you're within if you're within a hunting camp and you're with your buddies, I mean, yeah. it might be something you do. You t- I mean, that's reality. It might be something you do, you talk about, you know, maybe you think it's funny. But it's different to put it in in front of the public. And one thing that I wanna I literally wanna urge and plead for anyone that listens to this podcast, we have to take it upon ourselves to be responsible about, it's simple things, people. It's, it's you know, taking a picture where, you know, it's not blood and guts or there's not an arrow in yeah. something's head or, I mean, you know, there's just stuff like that to where, you know, even if someone's like, well, only good coyotes a dead coyote I mean I can I get it I totally yeah. get it I understand it but there's people that I deal with every day on national teams or foreign soil to where they are they actually are to the point where they can somewhat try to yeah. to want to understand it but that is immediately a negative a very negative image for I what agree. we want uh, I, I think 100% cuz listen there there's people on one side 
you know, that are so extreme they'll never do it. But I think there's a lot of very rational people in the middle. Oh, and yeah. that's who we're catering to. I mean, I see, you know, and I, listen, I think sometimes we're our own worst enemy. Whether it be that stuff, whether it be even some of the stuff I see on TV shows, yep. where it's just, you know, it, it's just so it, too far. Yeah. That you know, hey, you got the hunters, you got it. But if I'm a hunter and I'm, I've done a lot, uh, you know, if I'm sitting there, be like, man, you know, as a hunter, that's pretty hard. Yeah, you know, that's what, what is court. what is yeah. the person in the middle thinking? Like you're pushing them to the other side as opposed yeah. to catering to them. I mean, every person I've ever taken out into the woods, whether it be, you know, just doing a bird shoot or a duck shoot or teaching them sport, like all of those people, are like man, that was really awesome. That was cool. I mean, I've made hunters, yeah, uh, by by bringing them out and doing it right. But you know. People aren't going to give it the chance if they're put off, you know, that badly. So we have to be, you know, steward, um, you know, of these things. But you also have to stand up for it and, and do it respectfully. I mean, uh, you know, God knows I've, I've taken a lot of heat for hunting and, and all of this. But uh, I, I think in the end for me, it worked out better in the sense that, you know, being from New York and a business family, you know, Hey, you couldn't talk about hunting. You couldn't talk about being a hunter. You just yeah. kind of kept it quietly. Once, once it was out there, someone you know, well, you got the took some photos that someone else you know had, and that I wouldn't have wanted out there. It yeah. was just my own stuff. And they, they put you know put them out there, and but rather than sort of shy away from it and do the oh I'm so sorry I'll never do it again. It's like no, here are the benefits of conservation. Right. Here's the aspects. Everything is used. Me too. Here's what's going on with it. It let uh, you come. It let you come out. Come out of the closet. Yeah. It, <laughs> it let was you come out about. The fact that you are a hunter, your brother's a hunter, you guys are super proud of it. Like, and then the entire hunting community like wrapped yeah, their arms around Yeah, and they were great. The I mean, there were people that I knew, John, for decades. Decades. I didn't know they were hunters. So they're like, hey, you hunt, Don? I'm like, yeah. Like, I mean, so it, it, ended up, it ended up being great in that it opened up so many you know, people I already knew or you know, certainly in a place like New York where there's a lot of hunters, actually, and a lot of pretty serious hunters, but they just can't talk about it. Uh, sort of opened the door to that circle. It's like, wait, like these are guys I've you know I've known or known of for a long time, but I had no idea. Well, so it, it was actually a, it, it did me a great service. Today I did um, I did this workout. I actually went to I can't I don't know how to say his last name. I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher your name, Joe. But anyway, through this this shows you guys how important this is. So obviously, I love. I love to show how I cook what, you know, yeah. what I what I harvest. I love that. I love I love eating it. Love I love cooking good food. I love providing for my family. I love showing it to everybody. So, through one of my hashtags, I think it was like eat clean train mean, I gained a follower on social media. His name is Joseph Singagoga. I think I got that right. But you can go on my Instagram and you can see um, I, he started following me, so I kind of started watching some of the stuff that Joe does and realized, okay, Joe lives in New York, and he he humps around a backpack with a kettlebell in it and, you know, some rings and TRX stuff, and he trains people, and that's what he does. And I've been following him, and he started following me because of a healthy eating lifestyle and also my fitness lifestyle. So... Since I was here overnight, I actually just surprised Joe and sent him a message and just said, hey, would you want to meet at sunrise to work out in Central Park? So Joe came and met me, and it's the first time where I've actually got to, you know, we've got to talk. And what's crazy is he told me, he said, 
I don't shoot archery, but he said, I'm, he's like, I've researched it. And he said, I want to start. And I said, well, what, I said, what makes you want to start? And he goes, dude, it's $12 to go get ground meat in like good ground meat in New York city. He goes 12 bucks a pound. And he goes, and he said, and honestly, I don't even know where it comes from. And he eats super clean. He's like promoting a healthy lifestyle. And he told me, he's like, I want to do this just for the aspect of putting food on my table where I know where it comes from. Well, the thing is, if I would have had that hashtag and then the next post I would have had on my page was super controversial. And Joe even told me, he said, dude, I've got so many friends. They're not right. They're not far left. They actually, they're not necessarily, they're not for hunting, but they would be for hunting for their own organic food. Correct. So those are the people that I'm like pleading, let's bring those people within our community because we all know once you go on that first hunt, or once you go on that first pheasant hunt, you're a lifer. Put the gun up and you know get a pheasant, and then someone throws that thing on a grill, like you're hooked. So let's let's hook them and reel them in rather than you know 100%. rather than push them away or you know create a, a negative image. Not to mention, we just don't anything you put out on social media that's super negative for our community that is on the grid for life yeah no I and, and and they'll use it forever they're gonna they, use it it's, so yeah, I mean, yeah you just gotta you gotta think about it i mean everyone's you know and everyone can get excited and caught up in the heat of the moment oh, yeah, I, I get it but it, it's it's easy to do it right it's not that hard it's not a big ask uh but i think you know for us who the lifestyle really means something. For me, it is my lifestyle. It's yeah. what I do. Oh, yeah. It's not a, you know, I don't do this once a year to talk about it at a cocktail party. Uh, it's what I do. No, you yeah, normally, I, I want to preserve that, you know? It's, you normally text me about hunting when you're at a cocktail party. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, I really wish I was hunting <laughs> yeah. instead of whatever the nonsense I'm doing right now. So, uh, um, but yes, I mean, it, it's easy enough to do. And I mean, I, I think we can really, you know, grow and preserve the sport that way. Because if you don't, it's it's not going to work out. You got to, you know, you got to get that younger generation into it. You can't have, you know, an aging population and it's it's easy to do I think honestly I think archery has done a really good job of that probably much better than the firearms guys yeah um, you know whether it's a little less intimidating to do it I mean there's places in you know, I know places in Queens and New York that you know you, you can go out there and shoot bows and learn and you know and my sister posted a thing like a few weeks ago or I guess this was probably the fall yeah but, you know where she, yeah, she was, was out shooting archery That's I, yeah. I think I sent it to you and I was yep. like I mean I'm like you know, Ivanka, you could have just come to my house. I could have yeah. had you shooting a but, but like, you know, it sort of made it an activity. It was, it was like going bowling. Like for, you know, it was a, yeah. sort of, a, you know, a, a bunch of very unlikely New York City kids going out and doing something like this. But, uh, you know, it, hey, why, why not? And I mean, and everyone had a blast and everyone had a good time. I mean, it, it's an accessible, uh, an accessible sport. And then you can figure out where you want to take it. And what's amazing, too, is you've been pretty hardcore with your son, D3. Yeah. You took him to Alaska twice? He's been to Alaska once, and he's been to the Yukon once. Oh, that's right. And, I mean, uh, you guys, you told me about some of your pack-ins for your fishing, for, yeah. for a little one-day fishing. And, I mean, he didn't complain a bit. No, he, well, he, was, he, was, he was five doing, you know, a, a 10-day Alaska, you know, pack-in trip. And then, you know, he was seven this year when I took him up to the, uh, you know, the Yukon for a you know, 10-day 
you know, caribou hunting. He yeah. just went everywhere. I mean, there's some days we'd leave camp at seven in the morning, get back at four a.m. the next day because <laughs> you know it's late till one in the morning, and yeah. it's like if you're if you're going, or you know, or if you then get something down, you start having to pack out quarter out a you know entire caribou or whatever it may be. Yep. You know, this is not something that happens. Uh, you know, and that little guy after you know, let's call it a. You know, twenty-one hour day. You know, just stick a Snickers in his mouth every like couple hours, and then you got like three hours of energy out of him. You know, it's I like just remember putting him down to bed, and he's about passing out. He just looks at me, and goes, "You know, Dad, you know, don't don't leave without me tomorrow. You just don't leave." He, he just wanted to get back out there. I mean, That's he, awesome. so he, he's a hardcore little dude, and I mean, he went places that the grown men in camp couldn't go. You know, my, my brother and I were the only ones that you know did anything that time because we were able to get far enough away from camp just because. You know, a bunch of wolves came in, sort of pushed everything far and yeah. Far. I mean, so you, you did do a seven mile hike just to start hunting. Yeah, uh, you know, it was a uh, it, it was rough, but it was you know amazing. And he just rose to the occasion, and that's part of it. I mean, you, sometimes you have to. I, I brought him in a situation knowing that hey, this this could, this be... could make my hunt really difficult, and <laughs> if not if not impossible. But it's like okay, that's what it is. He wanted to go and uh, but man, you put him in that opportunity, and he was just a, he was a stud, man. They couldn't. Couldn't believe him. Think about what that does for his self-image, too, because yeah. he's, you know, if he goes out and, say, goes out on a camp out with some buddies now and people are scared of the dark, scared of the dark by 1030 wanting to go back in the house, he's going to yeah. be like, come on, dudes. Let's. Yeah, this is nothing. You know, he, he's, got, he's got none of those fears. He's, he's not even wolves howl, howling right now. Yeah. No, it's a, a whole different world for him. Well, we should um, wrap this up. I want to make sure... Um, we might be able to fling a few more arrows before I got a jet. But um, hey, everyone, appreciate you listening. Appreciate Thank it, buddy. Yeah, awesome. It's about time we did this too. Yeah, I'm glad. Um, I'm glad everything played out the way it did for you guys, and you were you were a Clydesdale workhorse at the yeah. front of that whole thing too. Uh, it was great to be able to. It was a lot of fun. Met some amazing people. Yeah. My biggest problem now is I got. Met so many people in the camp intro. They're like, "Hey, you got to come out hunting with us. It's a pretty cool place." Yeah. I just I can't fit it all in. I'm like, yeah. hey, "Can I extend that one for like two or three years?" Like, yeah. I didn't make. I'd love to go. But uh, thanks for grinding that in on me. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. like having a cool place to hunt in Iowa is. <laughs> I don't blame you. Hey, listen. You know, in all fairness, you can. I, I've spent like decades hunting, like you know, <laughs> up, upstate New York, where it's like you know, if I see. You know the old New York eleven point, which is a spike. You <laughs> yeah. Know, if you see that, you're 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 pretty psyched. So you know, I, I don't I don't feel that bad for you. I don't feel that bad for you, Jeff. Well, if there's any overflow and people just really need some someone to come at a really awesome place <laughs> and you just can't be there, then let me know. I'll do that. Man. I'll do that. <laughs> All right. See you, everybody. Knock on. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock on lifestyle clothing. Knockonarchery.com.